You're listening to a podcast from I'dRatherBeWriting.com. I'm your host, Tom Johnson, and today I'm talking with Richard Hamilton, author of Managing Writers, A Real-World Guide to Managing Technical Documentation, which was just published a few months ago. Uh, a little bit about Richard. He has developed technical documentation for many software and hardware projects. He's led development teams, including a team at Hewlett Packard that developed a DocBook XML-based environment. Uh, he has been a member of the DocBook Technical Committee since 2001, and he is a contributing author to the DocBook 5.0 Transition Guide. He's got a blog at rhamilton.wordpress.com, and he was kind enough to send me a copy of his book that I that I was able to read and and check out, and it's it covers a lot of different topics that would really be of interest to people who are called as managers. Um, so I'm talking with Richard today and I've got some questions and hopefully we'll get into some of this book to um, show some of the, the gems that are in here. So Richard, can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to write this book? Sure, be glad to. Uh, well, let me start out by saying thanks very much. I really appreciate your uh, taking the time to speak with me on the uh, podcast. I think actually the, um, the main motivation for the book almost lives in the title. A real-world guide to managing technical documentation. The analogy I like to use is if you think about the Navy, when everybody thinks about the Navy, they think aircraft carriers, battleships, really big stuff. But if you talk to somebody who's been in the Navy, they'll tell you that the Navy is, for the most part, a lot of small ships that nobody ever hears about and then a few aircraft carriers that everybody pays a lot of attention to. And the technical communication world is a little bit like that. What you hear about all the time is the big content management systems, the um, uh, big single sourcing projects, thousands of pages, did uh, all these very cool things, and they're very cool things. But I think a lot of people spend their time and spend their time working in smaller groups. You know, a couple of people probably reporting into a manager in marketing or somewhere else. And that really is what I see as being the real world, if you will, for a lot of people. And I felt that that's a little bit underserved. And so that's really why I went, went ahead and wrote the book. Now, I found it interesting in the opening pages, you, you said that you are a developer. That's your background. You're a software developer. You had led teams in, in Japan, and, and you thought you were going to be um, called as a, a project manager, perhaps in China or something, but instead you were asked to become a, a manager of a technical documentation team. How did you feel when when uh, they, they asked you to do this? Well, you know, it, it was um, it was a little bit disorienting because, uh, as you said, I had been doing software. I kind of saw myself as this uh, software ninja kind of guy, doing all this cool stuff, and um, and I really didn't understand what it was that the technical documentation teams were doing there and so it was a little bit of a little bit of a surprise but i you know kind of took it on as a um as an interesting challenge partly because i thought it was an interesting challenge and partly also because i knew some of the people on the team and i knew they were really cool people and so that was that also led me into that team what is it about technical communicators that maybe makes them a little bit unique in contrast to other professionals in terms of managing? I, I think it probably starts from, at least in my experience, uh, diversity and background. 
in the sense that what um, what I found was I was managing groups that had, um, I managed a group for a while that had a carpenter, a psychologist, a mathematician, um, computer scientists, and, and, and one English major, um, and then later on two. And so you had a real diversity of background, um, and they were all good, competent people. They all understood the technology, they all could do the job. But they were, um, you know, it wasn't kind of like going to, say, uh, Stanford and saying, okay, give me an EE, where you knew you had a common background, that there were certain things that you could simply expect. It's much more diverse and, um, and challenging, kind of interesting. I liked it a lot. So one of the chief functions of a manager, right, is to hire and to hire the right technical writer. So given that they have these, these distinct backgrounds, they don't come from a, a standard degree, what do you look for when you're trying to hire? How do you know if the person is going to be able to cut it as a technical writer? I would say that uh, there's several things you look for. One is, is and you do this with anybody you hire, you're going to look for good work habits. You're really going to want to find somebody who, um, who does good work that way. I like to look for a certain amount of subject matter expertise. I want them to know something about what it is that they're going to write about. I want, in most cases, unless I'm hiring some, somebody in an entry level, I want them to be able to demonstrate that they have, in fact, done this kind of work before. Um, and so those are the sorts of things I look for. And I also tend to, um, to look for uh, people who have a little bit of leadership skills, um, some of those kinds of things. What about writing samples? How, how heavy of of a factor is that in your evaluation? I, I think writing samples are really important. Um, what I like about writing samples is uh, it's kind of twofold. One is the obvious, which is that you actually get a sample of somebody's writing to take a look at. But the other is a little less obvious, and that is that I've, I like to use a writing sample as a means to get into an interview. And so I'll take a writing sample and ask the writer, so, you know, tell me why you chose to uh, structure this in a particular way. Or I'll ask them, um, uh, you know, what were the problems you had doing this? You know, what was the biggest challenge doing this? And you can use it to lead yourself right into a discussion that, um, that will help you evaluate that, uh, that person. And so, yeah, the, the, the sample itself is of some importance, but also where the sample will lead you when you do the interview is equally important. I hadn't thought of that. That's a really good point. That it's like an entry, an entry point into a discussion about a whole context of different oh, exactly. scenario and. That's right. And the other so, thing I look so for. Not, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. I was going to say the other thing I look for is I also like to see how the how writing samples are presented. You know, if somebody just grabbed a bunch of stuff and you know shoved it into an envelope and heaved it over the transom, um, that tells you something different than somebody who sends you a uh, you know a binder with things in there and um, uh, you know meta information, some write up about what's in there and so forth. You can tell something about the way a person works by the way they present writing samples to you. Now, in the interview process itself, uh, there are some danger points that that you outlined in your book. Um, I was actually reading an article last week that was fascinating to me. This person said that the one interview question you should really ask your candidates is what do you do in your spare time? And they use this example of the pilot who had landed this plane in distress on the Hudson and how he, in his spare time, spent all his time doing plane things. However, 
actually, Alistair Christie, a, a podcaster in the UK, brought up a, a, a point about that, and that could be a danger point in an interview where it could cross some legal lines. You could you can bring up some some things you shouldn't. So w- what are what are some no-no questions or what are some things you can't do in an interview? Well, um, I'd start off by saying I'm not a lawyer, but um, uh, the, the kinds of things that you want to avoid are things that, um, that are not job-related in some sense. So um, it's really not appropriate to ask somebody about, I mean, you, you may, you may want to ask in general, you know, what kinds of things do you do, but you really don't want to probe into areas where you run into things that are outside of... Um, of the, the work context, and so I tend to, I tend, in fact, not to ask questions like "What do you do in your spare time?" Um, unless they're highlighted in a, uh, a resume. So, for example, if a resume has got something down there that says that they're, you know, Boy Scout leader, I may ask them about that. But um, I tend to only go in that direction if they give me an entree in that direction, and will tend not to press in that direction. Just will just, you know, say, "Well, tell me about this." Um, although I do agree that you can learn quite a bit about people. Um, uh, the uh, the pilot we're talking about, uh, you know, was a was a glider pilot, and that made a difference in what he was able to do in the Hudson. Now let's say that you hire a person, but then a couple months down the road you realize that they were the wrong person, and you and you need to fire them. This seems like it's got to be one of the most difficult situations that managers can face. And you pointed out in your book that you can't just fire a person at will, even though the contract uses those terms. Can you talk a little bit about how you how managers go about firing people? Actually, the best way to, is to avoid it in the first place. In fact, if you do a good hiring job, you've got a much smaller chance of having to. But really what I think I was getting at to in that part of the book was that there's, there's almost a dance. If you really get to a point where you, you, it looks like you've got somebody who's got some serious issues with respect to the way they work for this job. And usually that's what it is. I mean, usually um, if you're good at hiring, you, you, you can mostly get rid of folks who, um, how to put it, who, uh, who are going to have bad work habits and that sort of thing. So what you're really talking about is somebody who simply doesn't quite get it as well as you'd like or it doesn't quite fit in the organization and or can't quite meet the standard that you need to meet and in those kinds of cases what um, what most companies will do is have a, um, a process that you can follow where you in fact do have a discussion with the person you explain to them what it is about their performance that you're concerned about and you very specifically very specifically what you need them to be able to do and quite honestly what it is that they could do that would in fact get them back on the straight and narrow if you will and so uh, you begin with that and you then work along with them and if you do it right what you're really doing is you're giving them the opportunity to either prove that they are capable of doing the job with some work of some kind or that they, in fact, are not a good fit and are essentially led to a point where they almost have to say themselves, you know, I don't belong here. Now, you don't always get to that point. You may have to, in fact, um, still uh, take the action yourself. But what you're doing is giving somebody the opportunity, uh, as much of an opportunity as you can, to to do what you need them to do in the job before you take the uh, final action. I think that's a good strategy to to basically let a person know what they're doing wrong, as you say, before, you know, they, they just get served up termination sort of papers out of the blue. But 
how do you know, as a manager, you want to be aware of your, of your, uh, your team and the problems they may have, but a manager's usually often in meetings and, and in, in other ki- kinds of uh, leadership, offsites, whatever. How does a manager know when a member of his or her team is in trouble? There are, well, first of all, I, I tend to like to make sure that I'm in frequent contact with people. If I'm, if I am, um, if I'm in the same location as somebody, I will make sure that I am stopping by from time to time informally. Um, if they're off-site, I will schedule regular meetings, and so I will be in communication with them and talking to them about the work that they're doing. So there's that. That's one aspect of it, and you can learn a lot just simply by talking to somebody. You can begin to tell whether they're in in uh, deep water or not. The other thing is that as part of that management job, that's you know separate from working directly with the people, is in fact working with the teams that you're supporting. And so the other thing that you do is you are talking with the managers of the uh, engineers who your team is supporting. And when you're talking with them, you're finding out how things are going. And what I've found is that most managers are, are very open about whether they're happy or unhappy about the work of the people who you have supporting their work. And so those things there are the, the kinds of things I go for. Um, in, in order to get a sense, you know, on a day-to-day basis or a week-by-week basis as to how people are doing. What about a different situation here? Let's say that you, your, your company has decided to offshore your technical documentation over to another country and you're, you're a manager. Just tell me, do you think, what's your opinion about offshoring? Is it a good option? Is it, is it not? Um, this is one of those depends questions. I don't. I'm. I'm not a big fan of offshoring um, for all sorts of reasons. But um, what I I kind of fall back on in terms of thinking about it is that I like to have a writer close to the team that he or she is supporting. And so, if in fact your company is offshored engineering, software development, any of those kinds of things. You probably ought to be thinking about offshoring the uh, the writing, um, and there are some other kinds of tasks that you can imagine offshoring. Things that do not connect quite as closely to the you know, subject matter experts, if you will, and because of that, um, you uh, you know you have a few things that you could put off offshore that are that um, that that require not quite as much direct contact, but in general. What I um, like to do is keep together the engineering teams and the writing teams, and if at all possible, I much prefer the U.S. I mean, just being a U.S. guy and wanting to keep stuff domestic. Now, I want to talk about something that I think is has to be one of the most important functions of a manager, and that's motivating your team. How can a manager motivate his or her employees to to enjoy their job to to try to go over the 100% effort mark what can you do to inspire your your employees well i i actually make a distinction between um motivation and for lack of a better term coercion in in my view if if i am the person if i'm the manager and i i can apply pressure 
for people to do things, and that's essentially coercive in, in a sense. That is, I pay them money um, to do things, I have a certain amount of power over them, and so forth. On the other hand, the motivation is really an internal thing. That is, they're motivated to do work because they like to do good work, because they think the project is good. And so to me, motivation really, from a manager's perspective, is developing an environment where people are, um, are self-motivated. And that typically is going to mean setting up an environment where you have some objectives that make sense. You have some good customer-oriented objectives. Um, you know, I'm really big on the idea that as, a, as technical communicators, we ought to be doing things that serve the customer and ideally serve the customer in such a way that the customer wants to pay money to the company for things. So um, that may mean directly selling or it may mean any number of things. But what it basically boils down to is that you have an objective that is customer oriented and typically those kinds of things, things where, the, the, where an employee can see that what they're doing has an effect on the bottom line of the company are things that tend to be motivating. And then the other piece of it is essentially keeping your environment as, um, as open as possible and as shielded from distractions and you know, the petty politics that go on and all those other kinds of things and keeping those things away. Do you think that rating and ranking are more coercive forms of motivation? In a sense, yes, I, I do think they are. I, I see rating and ranking as being... Uh, really for the purposes of the company rather than for the purposes of the employee. Rating and ranking are useful to the corporation, but unless you are kind of the highest ranked kind of person, you're way in the, those, those top, top ranks, um, in which case you get a nice little ego boost, but you were probably motivated anyway, right? Or you're at the bottom, in which case you get kind of a boot in the butt. But in fact, if the manager's doing the job right, you should be getting that um, motivation in that sense or that coercion anyway. So, and then in the middle, it's either a no-op or it's discouraging that, oh, gee, you know, I'm, I, I'm not up there in that, that higher, higher rank. And so I tend to see it as something that, that tends not to be motivational. It's usually a necessity in order to, um, for the company to do the things it needs to do to kind of dole out raises and all those kinds of things. But it's not something that I see as being useful in terms of motivation. There are particular situations where it seems like motivation and, and your ability to rally your team together can be particularly critical. And one of these is when you you have a new authoring tool or a new technology of some kind that that affects the authors, the writers. And sometimes people are split. Some people like RoboHelp. Some people like Flare. Some people like Author It. Some people want to adopt Ditta. Um, you know, if you have a team where you have these different, different uh, predilections towards different technologies, how do you unify them? and bring them into like a standard tool? Or do you even do that? It, it really depends on the tool. For example, if you're talking about a, a tool that works with XML, if you're, if you're authoring Dita or, uh, or DocBook, um, and you've got some people who want to use Oxygen, some people want to use Emacs, and some people want to use something else, um, I'm inclined to be pretty 
permissive about that to the following extent, the, to the extent that it doesn't cost me tons of money to go out and buy, you know, random copies of X-Metal and, you know, five other tools in order to do it. But if I can accommodate it and I can get interoperable content, I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, with respect to, you know, some, sometimes you don't have that choice, really. I mean, if you're going to be dealing with, um, with certain kinds of outputs, you really are, are locked into certain kinds of tools. And in those kinds of cases, um, it's really a matter of, you know, here's what we need to do for output, and therefore, here are the tools that we need to deal with that. And, um, and gee, if you don't like this tool, now's a chance to learn a new tool. <laughs> Yeah, that's, it, it can be a tough situation, actually, uh, you, you know, because there are so many different tools. And, and once somebody acquires an expertise in that tool, it makes it even harder for the person to, to kind of let go and, and try something different. That is that is true. And I've, I've run into that personally. I've, I've Back in the, the dark ages when there was just uh, VI and Emacs, I used VI. And um, my boss had me working on a project where we were doing a... Um, uh, a project actually in China, and we were using Emacs. And he said, "You will use Emacs." I wasn't. I uh, he, he basically said, "You will use in your day-to-day -day work Emacs because I want you to eat the dog food," as he put it. And and in fact, it was good for me. I've used Emacs ever since. And um, and I think that sometimes you just need to go to folks and say, "You know, I know this is not your most comfortable tool, but you know, you guys are professionals, and tools are tools, and it's always good to learn a new one." Let's talk a little bit about metrics and, and what you measure, because as a manager, you have to have some kind of way of measuring success and measuring your employees and how they're doing. Now, what are your thoughts on, on metrics? What, what are good things to measure? Yeah, I have, a, I have a, an aversion to certain metrics, um, but <clears throat> the metric that I probably, uh, the kinds of metrics I really prefer are ones where you can really measure a customer um, result. And so if you can measure, um, for example, you know, what people are reading on the web, um, what people are paying money for, those kinds of things I think are worth measuring. The kinds of things that give me heartburn in terms of measurement are things like page counts, um, those kinds of things. Um, I find that, that, that if you're a writer, knowing page counts and knowing how long it takes you to write a certain number of pages of a certain type of content is very important. But as a manager, measuring that is pretty well guaranteed to distort the system. What will happen is if you start, and I'm sure you've probably run this in other places, um, if you start to, um, to measure page count, your page counts will go up. If you start to measure um, other kinds of things, those things will adjust one way or another. And what will happen is the things you measure will find their way to a number that you consider fine, and other things will go out of whack. And so I much prefer measures that, that are related to the bottom line. They're related to customer satisfaction in some way, customers' willingness to pay money for what you're doing, those, those kinds of, of metrics, rather than metrics that have to do with um, productivity. You know, I think the, the reason that page count is, is sometimes used as a metric is because it's so easy to do. It, it is a lot harder to try to measure customer satisfaction, except you mentioned earlier, you talk to the project managers, right? They're in many ways the customers. And so you, you're doing that and you're measuring that, right? Even though it's not something that you quantify into a grid, I, I doubt. No, not um, at all. <laughs> I actually once had a job where 
people really wanted me to impose some kind of metrics and and I was a copywriter and so I said okay I'll just tell you how many words I wrote and each week they had me hold up a little graph that showed like an up arrow or a down arrow and it was kind of amusing because nobody really cared whether it went up or down it was just kind of one of those going through the motion type of things. Oh, I've run into those sorts of things, um, and, and I know what you mean. And, and about the best I've been able to do is because every once in a while you will get a manager who will, who will say, gee, I really want to you know, count lines or pages or whatever it happens to be. And usually what I try and do is, you know, if that, wherever that manager's coming from, if that manager is a software developer, I say, well, would you want me to count your lines of code? Or if they're, um, you know, and, and as soon as you say that, they, they, all, they immediately back off. <laughs> Yeah, I can see how that would be something that they could totally relate to. Well, one other way that I think uh, you could you could measure writers is is looking at documentation plans, and you talk about this in your book. And how sh- how should a manager be involved in these documentation plans? Should writers write them? Should should managers write them? How do you approach it? I like to have the writers write them. Uh, it, to my mind, there's a couple reasons for that. One is the writer is the one who, who knows best what, um, what they can do and what needs to be done for a particular project. Secondly, if they write the plan, they're more likely to own the plan. If you write it for them, it's, oh, yeah, it's that, that plan that got handed to me. Um, and thirdly, the, the value of, of the whole activity is not so much the plan, although the plan has some importance. It is the process that gets you to the plan. And so if I, as the manager, go through that process, um, it doesn't do the writer as much good as if the writer goes through that process. So that, that's my view on it. And I have um, the, about the only time I get involved with writing a plan is if somebody needs coaching. And... and- do you ever use these plans in in your meetings with the writers to find out how they're doing and how they're how they're following up with deadlines and, and deliverables and things? Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, because you, you you do still. I mean, you were talking about tracking the metrics. It's not that I you know I, I don't ignore uh, schedules. Um, I certainly want to um, uh, to keep track of schedules, and so yes, I will use the the plan in that way. Although to tell you the truth, and maybe maybe I'm an exception here, um, but I tend to to feel best about going in and just talking about what's happening. And I'm keeping track. I know what the, um, the schedule is, and I know whether you know there's, there's a problem with the schedule, uh, but I really like the discussion to be more along the lines of, you know, are you achieving your objectives? Is this, you know, is this headed where it should be? Um, what are the problems you're running into? Is there anything I as manager can do to unblock some particular situation? Those, those kinds of things. Speaking of schedules, one thing that I think is super critical is getting the writers involved early on in a process so that, so that A, the project managers include them in the budget for the project, but B, so that they are not expected to produce tons of, of help materials at an unrealistic schedule. And it seems like the manager, more than the writers, have that that perspective where they can look early on in the projects that are coming how do you get man how do you get writers inserted early on in the development process of a project it's well you you almost you said a little bit of it right there and that is that sometimes the manager has to be in has to be inserted a little early in order to just kind of be a placeholder for a little while but in general um i i tend to like to to cultivate the uh, managers who uh, uh, were supporting 
And one of the reasons I like to do that is I like to be able to, um, to say to them, look, um, I want this writer to be involved in some of your early planning so that as the project goes along, you will, um, you'll have the benefit of that person knowing what's happening. And you will also have, um, you'll have the possibility of getting them up to speed at an earlier part in the project rather than the last part of it where everybody is, um, is going crazy. And so if you, you know, if you have a good relationship with those managers, you can generally get folks inserted in. And then you, you, you also have to you know, work with your writers to make sure that they um, understand that when they walk into those early meetings, they may be just sitting on the wall for a little bit and just kind of absorbing it because they're pretty early. But um, those, those kinds of things, I think, will help with it. But a lot of it has to do with just how your relationship is with those, those managers. And if it's good, then, you've, then you, can, you can get what you need in terms of getting people in earlier. So let's say that you've, you've got some writers on your team and you've loaded up some projects that are pretty early on in the development phase. Um, so, so you're not really sure if they're all going to coincide at the same time and be due at the same time or what. So uh, how do you measure proper allocation of, of time and projects among your writers? Um, do, you, do you keep spreadsheets of, of different, how many projects they have, or, or do you just uh, feel out the writer's sense of being overwhelmed, or how do you make sure that they're, they're balanced? Um, that, can be, that can be pretty difficult. Um, I generally ask a lot. That is, I, I talk to the writers a lot about where they feel they are, where their, their load is. And, and you, know, I, you know, one of the things about this is you kind of have to begin to psych out individuals. And so there are some people who will always be willing to take on some more work. And then there are other folks who will um, be convinced that they're absolutely you know, filled up to the gills. And then when you give them another bit of work, they'll be fine. Um, so you have to psych out people a little bit, but it is, it is a lot of it is asking and talking with them. The other thing about it is if you step back from it and look at it, and I, I really don't, I mean, I use spreadsheets at times because um, often it's the best way to just, you know, have it in front of you when, when you get a call from a project manager who wants to know what's going on. But in terms of, of balancing and so forth, it's, um, you know, you really do have to, to look at it um, from the perspective of the writer and you have to look at the, the, the body of work rather than just some numbers on the, on the page. And it's, um, I hate to say it's intuitive, but there is a certain element of it that does require you to um, simply get a feel for what it, when a writer is, is beginning to get overworked. And you can tell, you can tell when they start showing up at you know, six in the morning and leaving at, you know, at midnight, um, it, it, it's, uh, it's noticeable. Now, this is one of my last questions here. Uh, we've talked a lot about some of the content in the book, but, but you have so many different areas, too, that we didn't go into, um, um, single sourcing and localization and content management systems and XML. There's a lot more there. But one question that I had that that actually you brought up kind of at the end, actually very at the very end, you said that after you... You, you left this company and you were no longer the documentation manager. They didn't entirely refill that position, that manager position. And yet uh, the writers seem to get along okay. Um, can you tell me, do you think writers need managers 
or or how do you view the need of a manager position? Um, I think they do need a manager, and you know it, it's it's interesting because there's um, uh, because I, I thought about uh, I thought about that ending of the book, which you're right, exactly is exactly that um, I left and they didn't replace me and originally it was kind of interim and then things hummed along so well that they just pretty much left it that way and you know given the economic situation they were probably happy to not have to bring in another um, another manager but i think in general that writers really do need a manager and there was a, a higher level manager who actually is very skillful who um who uh, took over many of the functions. Um, what I see, though, is, is is that what writers typically, what anybody typically needs is a manager who is looking at the objectives, who is taking a broader view, who is helping to keep things on track, who is working as kind of an umbrella to keep the distractions away, and somebody who is, uh, you know, is really keeping them focused but not somebody who's micromanaging, not somebody who is kind of being the authority, not somebody who's being, you know, daddy or mommy, that kind of thing. And I think that that um, that, that a writer does need that kind of manager, and I think that what, um, what will happen over time in that group is, uh, although probably by the time it happens, they'll, they'll reconfigure in five or six different ways, but that over time they will find that they will need that as more new people come in and so forth. But the team, as I as at the point at which I left it, I felt was in the, you know was really a uh, was was managing itself very well and mostly needed um, kind of the long term direction and a little bit of sheltering and they were able to go on for quite a while. Yeah, you mentioned that that you had laid a lot of the the structure and the the foundation that enabled the team to continue, and I, I think that's an important point because there are a lot of things that like a team needs to go forward, everything from just like standard uh, style guide to a tool set to a, a, an approach to how, how are we going to localize this and what what's uh, our method for publishing. I mean, there's so many things that once those are all set up and you've got a good thing going, then I can see that momentum continue. That's true. That's true. And in fact, that's kind of what was there. If if you were in a in a more fluid environment, it would you you would need um, to approach it a little differently. Um, this particular um, organization was uh, was long established um, and had therefore had a lot of those things in place. And so there was a certain aspect in which is exactly right. You know, the style guides, all those other kinds of things were there and, and moving forward. And so it, it didn't need as much of that kind of day-to-day stuff. Now, if you're starting a brand new group and a brand new company, it's a different game. So Richard, how many books are there out there on how to be a documentation manager? I, I don't really know what the market's like. It's reasonably small. Um, I am aware of, uh, in addition to this one, I'm aware of three of which I think two are in print. There is um, Joanne Hackos's book, um, which uh, is really, when I looked at the, the thing at the beginning, I looked at, at doing a book, I looked at hers and I said, you know, what can I do that goes beyond this? Because hers is, is very all-encompassing, very large. And that was where I realized that, well, what she's doing is she's, she's directing the aircraft carrier and she's doing a great job of doing that, but there, there are all these other little ships around that, uh, that, that might use some help. So there's that book. And then there's a book by uh, Stanley Dix, which is, uh, takes a little bit more of an academic approach and is used, I think, as a textbook quite a bit. And then there's a fourth book, which 
off the top of my head, I can't remember the title of, which I think has now gone out of print, that um, uh, that was around maybe uh, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. And that was, that was about it. I was kind of surprised to find that little out about it, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I think it's definitely, I mean, it's a super important role, and there should be tons of, of good literature on it, and I'm glad that you actually are trying to fill that gap that exists. Um, how can people... Find how can people buy your book? What is there a site that they go to? It's uh, XML Press, I believe. Yes, there is. It's xmlpress.net. And if you go there, the um, X, let me tell you something a little bit about XML Press because it's it's a piece of the picture. Um, um, XML Press is uh, is really a startup, and it is uh, uh, dedicated to books for technical communicators and really leaning towards XML, if you will, but, um, uh, but also covering other things, as, as is obviously this book is not exclusively about XML. But the idea really is to look at um, a piece of the market which is um, somewhat underserved in, in terms of, of, um, of, of material and uh, documents and so forth. And so that it's, it's you know, it's something that goes beyond the many, many books out there about technical writing. There are lots of books about technical writing, but there are many fewer books about some of these other aspects of technical writing and using XML for technical writing that, that, um, that XML Press is looking at. So if you go to xmlpress.net, you'll find um, information about the book. You can also find it on Amazon if you uh, simply search for managing writers on Amazon. And uh, also my blog, uh, you mentioned at the beginning, it is R.L. Hamilton. WordPress.com. All right, Richard. Well, thanks for talking to me today. Is there anything that you wanted to say that we didn't get to? Well, I wanted to thank you, first of all, for um, for giving me the opportunity to uh, be interviewed. I had a good time talking about this. And I also wanted to thank you for reading reading the book thoroughly. Um, the uh, The questions really do dig into what's, uh, what's there. And I'd like to think that the book has something for not just managers, but for really for technical writers, as well as people in other management roles who find themselves with a technical writer on their staff, which happens an awful lot. But I, I really do appreciate your uh, taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, that's actually, that's a great point that you end on there, that uh, a lot of times companies have a sole technical writer, right? Who's grouped under some other management group, and, and this would be the perfect kind of book for, for that type of manager. All right, Richard. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And thank you very much for having me.